Well, what a lovely day it is to go inside EMS. It's Friday, so you know what that means. We are going to bring you some great content on this great channel. This is Chris Subalero. Kelly Grayson is on special assignment today, so I am going to be flying solo. And this episode of the Inside EMS podcast is sponsored by Pulsera. Learn more about how you can build a regional system of care for free at www.pulsera.com slash EMS. You know, we've talked about it for a long time. And this community paramedicine thing, you know, where is it and where is it going? And is it just a flash in the pan? I got to tell you, people are still saying flash in the pan. And we're really over 10 years now into this transition. I don't know if you know that or not. But, you know, we see a lot of articles and, and we see a lot of, you know, opinion. And we and we hear a lot, and certainly you hear it from me on this show, where we talk about that this is what the future of what EMS is going to look like. But, but where's the proof? Where's the studies? Where's the research? Well, today, I got to tell you, we are going to bring you that research. We are going to talk to a man who really is one of the aforementioned leaders when it comes to research, not only on this topic, but in our career field. And that is Jonathan Washko. He is the Assistant Vice President of Northwell Center for EMS. And I call him a friend. John, I want to thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Thanks, Chris. It's an honor and privilege to be here. I'm sorry Kelly couldn't be with us. I was really looking forward to having some banter back and forth with him, but I uh, listened to you guys uh, a long time, and uh, it's it's awesome to be able to participate with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, I do want to, just a little bone to pick with you here. You did say, oh, that's too bad when you heard he wasn't going to be here, because I really, <laughs> I really enjoy his humor. So that's I how do you enjoy his humor. But that's yeah. how you not that my our humor, but his humor. So, but I'll forgive <laughs> well, you on that. Yeah, I'll okay. forgive you. All right, all yeah. right. Yeah. So you, the banter back and forth is uh, is I love to listen to you guys go back and forth, especially when you give Zavatsky a hard time. So keep it up. That's right. So, but uh, you know, so John, you know, you you went through. You have a group of people here that did this research. You know, it. Uh, I think it came out in December of eighteen. It was revised in March of nineteen. And it's called Community Paramedics Treat High Acuity Conditions in the Home, a Perspective Observational Study. And maybe you could just give us a little bit about the catalyst. How did, how did this study come about? Yeah, it's, uh, it goes back to actually 2012 uh, when I first met a physician named Dr. Christopher Smith, um, who was new to our health system, but kind of heading up and uh, spearheading our population management group. And this was right after the Affordable Care Act hit, and you know everyone was kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what do we do uh, with the ACA, and what's it going to mean, and what's this whole volume to value stuff, and you know how do we do all of this? And one of the things he was really focused on is you know how do we change and reform the system of the delivery of care that we have in the United States. And it's very clear when you look at you know healthcare overall that the we have great medicine, we have great physicians, you know we have. Uh, unbelievable pharmaceuticals. You know, we have some of the best healthcare in the country, yet, um, you know, our life expectancy is lower than most other countries, and we spend per capita an insane amount of money. You know, multiple times more than than other um, um, communities and, and other countries. And so, you know, as this whole community paramedicine thing was starting, and and I started talking with him about what could EMS do to help him out, um, it became very clear that. Um, 
there was a chance and an opportunity to reform the system. And he was very focused at the time on what's known as an advanced illness population or advanced illness management population. Um, these patients are the top 5% of Medicare utilizers that represent 50% of the spend of our healthcare dollars in the United States today. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it as you start to get up in years and you start to consume healthcare especially as you start to take on chronic conditions and if your social determinants aren't the best, you really start to become a, a heavy utilizer of healthcare services. And because we have an uncoordinated care system, we have a fractured care system, you know, fee-for-service economics has driven us to where we are today and, and, and quite honestly, the delivery system mess that we have today. Um, you know, uh, we, we had to figure out, you know, what, what can we do to, to change this? And, and that's really what you know, uh, kind of lit the fire of this. We were watching very closely what uh, Matt Zavatsky and MedStar were doing and Dan Swayze and what he was doing out in Pittsburgh area um, and following these things very closely and basically started to talk with Dr. Smith about how can we take what they're doing, kind of put our own spin on it. Um, and because we're a large integrated delivery network, you know, a larger IDN um, who's gone through consolidation and you know, uh, really uh, the ability to, to provide what I would call cradle-to-grave medicine, um, you know, um, because we have that larger network, how can we start to leverage what uh, this could be and really start to develop, I think, what we believe now based on the evidence coming out of the program could be the future state of healthcare probably five to seven years from now if if ET3 goes in the direction I hope it does and, um, you know, uh, if we start to really take the lessons learned and I think the recipe that we've come up with and, and start applying it to other populations. So, Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I think that there was a lot of things that were in that answer, but the one of the things that I, I don't want to gloss over, because I, I think it's really important for the people who are listening to this show, is you said that 5% of the Medicare population is really responsible for 50% of the spend. So now yep. when we start to think about, you know, those folks that really need our attention or the folks that, you know, need our, you know, transportation to the hospital, these are folks that we can basically impact in this new space that really is going to help CMS kind of see the light to the value of what EMS is doing now in their field. Yeah, and you, although you said something interesting, you said need our transportation to the hospital, and that's actually uh, what we've been trying to prove is not necessarily needed. And uh, you know, our research has been really focused on how can we reform uh, care, and it's all about getting the right care to the right patient in the right clinically appropriate time frame at the right quality and at the right cost. Um, and, you know, looking at IHI and the quadruple aim, you know, we want to improve quality and improve the, the health of populations. We want to improve satisfaction both for patients and providers, and we want to bend the, the cost curve, right? Uh, the, in other words, as I like to say, do it better, do it faster, do it cheaper. Oh, and by the way, first, do no harm, right? Our, our Hippocratic Oath. And most people say you can't do those three things. They usually say pick two. Uh, I'm a firm believer and you can do all three and you can do no harm and in fact in, improve the care and lives of these patients. And uh, I, I think we've been proving that um, in the work and, uh, and in our research. No, I agree with you 100%. So I think you gave us a great introduction. You know, we talked about, 
you know, the baby boomers, they're getting older, 10,000 people a day are retiring for the next 20 years, and, you know, who is going to take care of those folks? And these folks want to stay in their homes, and, and this is really where the challenges are going to be. So maybe you could just start off by giving us a little bit about the study design and where, uh, you know, where it was set and how it was conducted. Sure. So, you know, it, it does start back to 2013. So as I like to tell people when they're building programs like this, start with the end in mind and work your ba- work your way backwards. And that's really what we did starting back in, in 2012 as we started to design this program. We looked at what were, what was the problem we were trying to solve and, and, you know, what was the end game? And again, it was the trying to achieve the quadruple aim was our end game. And so we started from that and worked backwards. Um, and really data um, and how we collected data was actually the very first place we started. We didn't worry about the medicine. We didn't worry about protocols and all the other, you know, aspects that go into this. We started with what are the data elements we need in understanding the measures, the the various types of measures, whether it be outcome measures or process measures or balancing measures, those kinds of things, and and how are we going to collect that data in a reliable way? Um, and we were fortunate enough, you know, we're tied to a large health system that's also an academic medical center, and we have a bunch of research uh, and PhD folks here uh, at our health system, and so they helped us you know, really start to make sure that our data set was going to be robust and could withstand the rigor of, of peer review, evidence-based, uh, you know, um, uh, research. And so, you know, that's really kind of where we started. And then we worked our way backwards, uh, all the way back to the inception of the program, really. And it was Johnny and Roy, uh, you know, emergency that actually gave me the vision for this. Uh, because, Back in 2013, 2012, everyone's saying, oh, you can't do community paramedicine. It's against the law. The regulations aren't going to allow us to do it. And for me, it was like, well, we've all forgotten where we came from, right? You know, paramedics today are very used to using protocols and having more autonomous decision making and and really are actually even trying to drive kind of that next step with advanced practice paramedics and things like that. But I think we honestly have forgotten our roots. And, and that's what really gave me the vision of this program uh, from an operational design. And it was back then in the 1960s, Johnny and Roy weren't allowed to do anything without talking to a, do- a doctor. Now, we didn't have video visits back then, but we had telemedicine. It was called a MICOR radio and a, the ability to transmit a one-lead ECG over a telephone or radio, right? So we could do telemetry back then. We were doing telemedicine since the 1960s and 70s, as far as I'm concerned. And so we use that framework for the clinical decision-making uh, for the physician, but using paramedics and EMTs as physician extenders um, because regulatorily it was going to be challenging for us. And quite honestly, we didn't know what we didn't know. So we were nervous about the clinical risk associated with this, you know, again, first do no harm. And so it wasn't a matter that we didn't trust our paramedics or our EMTs. It was a matter of, we just, you know, we, we weren't sure whether this was going to go. So <clears throat> that was kind of the, you know, the first step of, of the visioning of this. And then the, the cool part, probably the most coolest exercise I ever did was we sat down and we emptied out, literally emptied out the back of an ambulance on a table. And we sat down with a bunch of uh, various stakeholders in this particular group, um, um, the physicians, the nurses, the uh, paramedics and EMTs, the, the uh, emergency medical dispatchers, um, our quality people, our data people, our IT people, and basically said, you know, here's the problem we're trying to solve, and here's what we have to do solve that problem. It's almost kind of going back to the Apollo 11 kind of thing, you know, where the astronauts, they had to figure out how right, to, right. you know, extend the astronaut breathing time by getting all the stuff they had on the capsule, and it was a similar exercise to that. And, um 
you know, basically what we came out of that was uh, what we called a clinical sandbox. So basically, here's all the tools in the EMS toolbox we were allowed to use as part of this program. And then there was a set of, of things we, we had to transport to the emergency room. And most of them were pharmacological in nature. There was a, a couple of things like CPAP. We don't put someone on CPAP at home and not transport. But for the most part, um, you know, we wanted to design what I would call an all hazards approach to this. So we weren't looking at a specific need like many community paramedic programs do, like just CHF or COPD or diabetes. This was a an all hazards approach or, a, you know, in the fire, surf lang- fire service language, this was the quint, right? You know, the ability to pretty much do anything with this program and really kind of de- design a foundation um, by which the medicine could be done. So it's an operational uh, foundation or platform framework that we developed that we could put you know, pretty much any clinical program or any clinical population on top of. Um, as part of that too, you know, our clinical documentation systems, our CAD integration, our billing systems, our quality systems, and how we were going to do the quality review, the technology, you know, um, every one of those pieces we knew we needed to collect data on so we could report out, you know, what worked, what didn't. And, you know, the, the quality program, you know, it was 100% quality review when we first started the program. We recorded everything, including our video interactions that we had with uh, the the video telemedicine interactions that we have in in our program. So that way we could go and and you know learn from it and um, collect the necessary data elements and uh, and be able to um, kind of uh, you know start to do the research that uh, that we're talking about today. So that's kind of how we that's kind of you know how we built this up uh, piece by piece. There's a lot more to it. Uh, you know, it definitely. Uh, um, I've read a book uh, as part of our work called Team of Teams, and um, I would highly encourage your listeners, uh, it's by General Stanley McChrystal, to uh, to read that book because it, it definitely influenced me in terms of uh, the design of this. And really, that's when you think about what EMS does is we're a team of teams, right? We're, we're one team, and the healthcare team is a different team, and the patient's medical home is a different team. And there's all these different teams in healthcare, but really nobody talks to each other, right? And uh, that, that book kind of talks about the the military and uh, how they had to overcome that that kind of stovepiped and um, siloed design where the left hand didn't talk to the right hand as we right. were starting to you know um, fight these newer wars with a different foe and uh, how the military had to transform itself and quite honestly it's it's a great analogy to what we have to do in healthcare. Yeah, I think you're absolutely yeah. right, and you know I certainly wrote that book down and I'm going to check it out. If I don't enjoy it, I'm going to get back to you on that. But uh, <laughs> so let's fine. go ahead. Love it. Okay. So I want to go ahead and take a quick break here, John. And then when I come back, I want to talk about the outcomes of the study and then the results of the study so everybody can know kind of where this went. But I want to just go ahead and touch on Pulsera for a minute. Pulsera provides a real time communication network across entire regions and it's free to EMS. The Pulsera platform, built on the power of mobile technology, unites the right clinicians at the right time for the right patient, providing transparency and streamlined communication. Simply create a dedicated patient channel, build the team, and communicate using audio, video, instant messaging, data images, and key benchmarks. Any patient, any condition, every time. Oh, and did we mention that it's free to EMS? For more information, visit pulsera.com slash EMS. That's P-U-L-S-A-R-A dot com slash EMS. You know, so I think, you know, from what you're doing there, this really gives us, and I've read the study and I've enjoyed it and I've shared it with my team so they can kind of see what was going on as we're starting to build this, you know, commercial community paramedicine pilot. 
So I guess I want to ask you about the intervention. So if you can give us just a little bit about, um, you know, how that worked, I think that really kind of lays the foundation as we talk about outcomes and results. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have to stop calling our program a community paramedicine program. Uh, you know, we, we learned this on February 14th. It's now called an ET3 program. Um, we've actually been doing ET3 since 2013. We just didn't know it. Um, but from an interventional standpoint, the three interventions that ET3 is inter- is bringing, uh, you know, uh, is going to pay for, you know, we've got the 911 call triage, uh, NOFO grant. We've got the treat and stay uh, with a provider visit, uh, and then we have, you know, transportation uh, to an alternative destination. And actually, our interventions uh, are all three. Um, we start with nurse call triage with this population instead of EMD. So we don't de-escalate down; we escalate up. Um, again, we we're we're in a you know a, a very kind of higher end, high utilizer uh, group here. So we're, we've decided to instead of kind of u- using EMD as a risk you know, assessment tool for this population. We, we are using nurses as the front end. Um, and part of that intervention is, I think, part of the key to our success. And so we use, uh, you know, the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch uh, Emergency Communications Nurse System, or known as ECNS. Um, and our nurses basically are the front line in dealing with these patients when they're in crisis. So uh, our nurses talk to these patients. We have 24-7, 365 access. And the first thing the nurse does is they, they try to, you know, de-escalate the situation. Uh, if the nurse is unable to de-escalate that, uh, our next intervention is to then get a provider on the phone, a QHP on the phone, to see if the, the, the provider can de-escalate the situation over the phone telephonically before, you know, we take this, have to kind of launch this next layer of defense. Um, the next layer of defense is our, I guess you could call it our community paramedic program, or it's our EMS response program uh, by, by uh you know, a specially trained group of uh, paramedics and EMTs that work in our program um, that also carry the technology for the telemedicine video visit, as well as have had, you know, some additional credentialing and testing and training. Um, They go into the home, start a high fidelity clinical assessment as paramedic extenders, getting the provider either on the telephone or on a video visit. And then uh, from there, the, the provider We'll do the clinical decision-making, directing our paramedics or EMTs to, for any interventions in the home, and then, um, if necessary, uh, transport to the emergency room. Um, so that's kind of, uh, you know, how it works. Um, a couple of surprising statistics, but important statistics to know. First off, of, of, of our EMS responses, 80% of them, 80% are diagnostic in nature only. So these are patients who would have called in the past 911, been responded to as a Delta, you know, uh, gone to the hospital, likely been admitted. Um, but, you know, we're able to, uh, with, with diagnostics only, so we're coming in with a Zolex series monitor and, and we have some some of the, the additional bells and whistles on that system from a measurement standpoint, you know, and it's, it's really, the, it's the experience of our paramedics. Uh, and their ability to, again, paint that, um, you know, paint a clinical picture for the provider on the other end if we can't get video up and running to uh, figure out what's going on. And we find often that the provider is able to do a care plan change without really any any clinical intervention from our paramedics. The other 20 percent um, are where there are clinical interventions. Um, surprisingly, um, the number one treatment uh, for our patients is what do you think? 
What do you think the number one uh, treatment for our patients is when uh, in this program? Uh, supportive care. Nope. Um, so outside of supportive care, um, the number one medical intervention is actually uh, a bag of uh, normal saline. Really? So, so just fluid therapy? Fluid ther- IV fluid therapy in the home um, you know, is our number one treatment, followed by oxygen, followed by a nebulizer, uh, followed by uh, steroids, and then there's a precipitous uh, drop-off to some of the other medications um, that, 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 uh, and formulary that, that we use in this program. And so we were quite surprised by those results. Um, but uh, yeah, from an intervention standpoint, again, it's, it's not so much about the medicine, it's more about the diagnostics and also importantly, getting in the home, understanding the social determinants of health, what's the root cause of the problem, right? And that's really what the uh, Independence at Home program that we're doing this under is, is designed to do is to really help manage and mitigate you know, some of the challenges of, of care in the home and making right. sure that, that, that these patients have the supportive needs that they, that they, that they, that they so, so much desperately need in order to keep them out of the, sure. the, the hospital. Yeah. Uh, and from a, you know, from an outcome standpoint, um, you know, um, we can get into kind of the results and talk about that, but, you know, um, the patients that do make it into the emergency room, about 80% are admitted uh, prior to this, about 60% got admitted. And the only reason that uh, the, the 20% that's not admitted is because of an indwelling catheter issue, for example, like right. a, a Foley catheter or a feeding tube in which, at least in New York, uh, EMS providers are not allowed to mitigate or manage, uh, or we'd have pretty close to 100% admission rate. Yeah, that's awesome. I got to tell you, I mean, I think that that is really... You know, this, this is this is the, the normal program on steroids, I got to tell you. I mean, because it really kind of thinks about, and I think that you kind of hit it, you know, hit the nail on the head when you said think about the end in mind. And now as you get to the end, it, it seems like you developed a really outstanding program. Well, let, let's go ahead and get to the meat and potatoes of the study. And, you know, this was a four-year study. You know, you had 31, uh, 3,137 unique patients that were enrolled in total, you had 1,159 individuals receive over 2,000 community paramedicine responses. So maybe take us just through these numbers. And, you know, we already talked about fluid therapy. We talked about nebulizers. So how, how did it work out? What was the proof of this study, John? Yeah, the, the, the proof, again, is, you know, a couple of things. One is what is the the end result? The end result really, the you know, the... The, the money shot, if you will, on the, on, the, on the whole program is the transportation rate of 17.9%. Uh, so in the past, over 95% of these patients would have gone to the emergency room. Um, and in this case, now only 17.9% are. Um, the other thing is, are we doing it safely? And so when you look at, uh, many people have different, uh, you know, nomenclature for this. I've heard recidivism rate, the rekindle rate, but essentially, um, within uh, what percentage of patients uh, end up going to the emergency room within a certain period of time after a community paramedicine visit? Um, we measure 24 and 48. We reported out 48 hours. So our 48-hour visitation post-CP visit rate is 6.9% overall. Yeah, that's, um, a, that which, was an, that's an amazing figure right there because when you think about it, people are saying, you know, this isn't going to work. They're going to wind up going to the hospital anyway. You've just proved that 6% of them are going. 
Correct. And we broke it down by Clausen code. So that's important as well. So ET3 is really focused on the lower acuity omega alpha jobs, right, uh, as defined by Clausen. Um, and we're doing the entire spectrum. And uh, again, that was developed intentionally to be able to kind of be this all hazards program. So I think there's quite a bit of learning opportunity in our lower acuity patients. Um, obviously, this is to an older population of advanced illness. But I think the programmatic design, the way we, you know, the that uh, we structured this, the safety systems, the quality systems, the measurement systems. I think people can kind of take our program and, and really use it to, as something to uh, to learn from as they develop their ET3 programs, uh, because this is kind of going to give you at least a, an understanding of what the, the I think the potential is. Now, I want to put a word of caution out there that this is you know, this is what ET3 could look like, I think, probably towards the back end of the program, or maybe hopefully it gets extended or it gets it's permanently introduced, because um, there's a lot of pieces here that make us successful with this. Obviously, we have providers involved at all levels. Uh, we also have access to these patients' medical records as part of our decision-making uh, for the for the clinicians involved or the providers, the QHPs involved. Um, we're moving towards getting that uh, access to our paramedics as well in the field. And you know, we're using providers that uh, are part of uh, this program. So they've been credentialed. They know what paramedics are about. They know what they can do. They know what they can't do and so on. So there's, you know, there's a couple of pieces to the recipe here that I, I think I, I want to stress. But I think that, uh, you know, ET3 uh, in its design is exactly what we did here operationally. And um, you can see that uh, when you properly design a program, I, I think the results can be uh, tremendous. You know, the other result to, to really call out is the, in the study is the satisfaction and, and what do the patients yeah. get from this? What do our providers get from this? And uh, you can see uh, in the in the study, you know, we've got top box scores in the high right. 80s and low 90s, which is unheard of. Um, and I just want uh, to read a couple of those, John, because that's exactly sure. where I was going to go next to talk about patient caregiver satisfaction. I mean, some of the things you're talking about is the community paramedicine visit decreased my burden of stress I felt as a caregiver. My goal for medical care were accounted for in the treatment plan. I mean, we're talking about high high 80s. You know, here's a 91. Overall, I was satisfied with my community paramedicine experience. I mean, these are just amazing satisfaction numbers. Yeah, we're we're very fortunate. You know, as it, as I mentioned earlier, it takes a team of teams, and uh, you know, our paramedics and EMTs, uh, our supervisors, everyone involved in this program clinically, whether they're in the field or they're in our call center uh, with our EMDs and our nurses, or they're our providers. Um, you know, really get along very well. Uh, you know, it is a team based approach. And it, it really shows. It's, it's one of our differentiators. We focus very, very hard on our, our cultural aspects of our organization as well as the, the business aspects, what we call smart, uh, being smart versus being soulful. And, uh, you know, we intentionally design um, both uh, the, you know, the, the, the smart side of this with the numbers and the, you know, the data and the operational frameworks and all of that. But uh, the soulful side has is, is really been a huge focus of this program, making sure that our providers are satisfied and that we, we focus on customer service and, you know, really solving our problems for our patients versus just kind of kicking the can down to somebody else. And, right. and the stories that come out of this are just absolutely amazing in terms of what our providers 
do to, to help these patients in their in their time and need to help solve their problem. So absolutely, it's a it's a it's a program we're 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 very proud of. And I think more importantly, what do the patients get to do now that we're taking care of them differently and helping them navigate through the system if they need that? But how is their quality of life improving? Which I think is also you know such a great uh, you know response to this program. But so as we get ready to wrap this up, you know, in a nutshell, maybe just give us. In your opinion, in your own words, well, I don't know who else, whose other words you would use, but, you know, what did this study mean for you as, you know, one of the, you know, uh, researchers on it, one of the examiners on it? I mean, so after you read it, what was the feeling that you had about what you're doing in this space? You know, um, it was, I guess the best way to describe it is, is we're able to, to help people and, uh, you know, that's that's why I got into this. I didn't get into this business uh, at a very early age because uh, I knew I was going to make a lot of money. I got into this business because I like helping people. And uh, as a testament to the program, uh, my mom's actually in this program. And um, she's uh, my dad passed away about 16 years ago. She's got advanced illness. Um, she's got a bunch of medical issues going on. And uh, I can tell you for her. Uh, it's changed her life in terms of uh, not so much independence, but um, keeping her out of the hospital, keeping her out of you know all the doctors' offices, and just all the craziness that our our broken healthcare system causes these poor people to go through. And she gets the care in the home where she wants to be. Um, you know, and uh, it's not just about the patient and she loves it, but it's also about the care providers. So I look at the burden that, you know, the daughter or the son or the grandkids or the spouse, right, has to uh, deal with at home and in, in, in dealing with these chronic situations and, and these needs of these patients. And it's a godsend to them, too, because oftentimes they just don't know what to do. And so it's, uh, you know, it's it's very fulfilling um, you know, I'm very proud to be part of the organization that's that's uh, enabled us to do this, and I'm very proud of the team that we have that uh, has enabled us to really transform um, life, uh, especially as you get uh, up there in years and you right. and you get towards uh, towards the end of life. And uh, this really changes what that what that's all about for our patients. So that's that's what I, you know the the best part of this, I'd say. And I think kudos to you and your team. I mean, this was a great study. It really kind of lays at the feet of everyone that wants to do a program about what it should be like, how it should be structured. Are folks able to get this uh, study? What's the best way they can download it if they can? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we felt it was important enough that we paid for open access. So if you don't have, uh, you know, uh, a subscription to any of the medical uh, research uh, tools out there, you can actually uh, go online and download this for free, the entire PDF. Um, it's at... Um, um, uh, the British Medical Journal or BMJ uh, is uh, where it's located at, and um, we can get you the actual URL. And uh, I don't know if you have show notes or something, we could put it there. But yeah, sure you can easy, easy, easily Google it, and it's available for free on the internet. And you can download the entire study and uh, and use it. And we'd be happy to take questions if you, if anyone has out there or. Um, you know, wants some additional insight on what we're up to and how we did it. We happy to happy to share. Well, as you continue to put, uh, as you continue to get the results, John, let's go ahead and come back and talk about them and and let's keep them in the forefront so people know exactly where we're moving. We're going to be in a in a different world here soon with ET three, and we really need to start thinking about what EMS is going to look like in that space. And I got to tell you, for you and your team, man, what an amazing job and uh, truly setting the standards for others to follow. 
Well, thanks, Chris. Like I said, it's uh, it's a huge group uh, effort, and uh, we're we're very honored and privileged to uh, to be able to do it. And and now it's our job to share it with everyone and and learn from others as well, because we don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, it it takes a village, and uh, there's a lot of great programs out there. We've learned quite a lot from, and uh, everybody deserves. Uh, kudos for this because this is only going to happen at, at an industry level and uh, I think we've got uh, some of the smartest people in healthcare believe it or not working in EMS so uh, it's it's an honor to be a part of this industry at this time I'll tell you awesome and for everybody out there I mean what a great show and just go ahead and read the study and just understand the work that was being done and how this proves this concept but if you have any questions concerns or comments go ahead and email us at the show at ems1.com And uh, for Kelly Grayson and myself and our guest, Jonathan Washko, we look forward to chatting with everyone again next week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.